Oh, okay. You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hello, and thank you for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Navarro. In this week's episode, we're joined by Panel Camp, a scholar of drama and performance studies here at Washington University in St. Louis. In an ongoing book project, Camp is lifting the curtain on the rituals of what is perhaps the world's most well-known secret organization, the Freemasons. You've probably heard that Mozart, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Gerald Ford, and many other historic figures were all Masons. Maybe you've even heard a conspiracy theory or two about the group. Well, it turns out that suspicions and curiosity about the Masons and their secret activities go back centuries. You know, I, I study the 18th century, and in the middle of the 18th century in France, um, after Freemasonry became popular, there were a series of exposures. Long before the days of cable documentaries or exposés, non-Masons managed to get access to what was going on during secret Masonic rituals, using tactics that could have come straight out of a modern-day spy movie. The story is that uh, a dancer at the opera um, who was involved romantically with a Mason managed to get some of this information from this guy, and then it became published. The goal at the time was to discredit the Masons, and the orders came straight from the top. This was actually the result of state espionage. Um, the head of the Parisian police had orders to uh, try to see what was going on with these Masons. Fast forward a few hundred years, and despite the best efforts of the French police back in the 1700s, the Masons are still around. But luckily for scholars like Camp, so are the centuries-old descriptions of their rituals, along with documents that Masons themselves keep about their history. Camp studies theater in the 18th century. His most recent book is The First Frame, Theater Space in Enlightenment France. When doing research for that book, he kept on running into references to Freemasonry. His curiosity was sparked, so while on leave, he visited some archives to scope things out. So not having any idea how protected the ritual information would be, the uh, manuscript dialogues, the descriptions of the ritual processes that I was interested in looking at, I just made an appointment to go up and spend some time in their library and look at the things that were on the shelves. Um, and so I was, in my mind, I was thinking, well, let me spend some time here, see what they have about, and then maybe next week or the next time I come back and visit, I will ask if there are um, ritual documents that I can look at and see about what that, you know, that process is of getting access to them. I didn't want to be too forward. But it ended up that there wasn't really such a need to be cautious. The archivist there um, uh, you basically suggested you know, that I should go ahead and apply to, to see the secret stuff. In Camp's experience, the Masons aren't as secretive as you might expect. They're actually happy to help when a serious academic wants to learn about their history. So sorry if this disappoints some listeners, but this research story is not like some Dan Brown novel where the professor runs around, avoiding danger and gathering secret clues. For Camp, the exciting part of the story is actually what's in the documents. 
because Masonic rituals in the 18th century have a lot in common with camp's area of expertise, theater. The rituals themselves had a lot of elements that we think of as theatrical. There were scripts of spoken dialogue that were called catechisms. And when you look at these in the archives now, you have this sort of question and answer uh, structure so that the participant is asked something and responds a certain way. So you have a, basically a play script with dialogue. There was also what we might think of stage directions and set design. You have really careful attention to the way that space is managed so that you have, you know, curtains that hide certain things and, and doors and passageways that are carefully maintained. You have uh, stagey lighting. You have, you know, candelabra and, you know, a, a sort of darkened area so that light and shadow are very carefully controlled. And of course, we can't leave out the costumes and the props. The Masonic rituals famously involve aprons and gloves and special props, symbolic objects. Um, so there's a lot about the rituals that are theatrical, and even from the 18th century when they were first exposed, people writing about these things would call them, um, you know, would refer to them in theatrical language. So at this point, you might be wondering, why were these rituals even happening? Just a little context, according to Camp, in this historical moment, there were three degrees in Freemasonry, apprentice, companion, and master. When you were first initiated, and then again, each time you went up the ladder, you went through one of these secret rituals. Camp is especially interested in the third and final ritual, when you become a master Mason. In that ceremony, on top of the set and props and costumes, the Masons actually became actors. They're in that third degree. You act out the um, murder of Hiram Abiff. Hiram Abiff. According to the story, Hiram Abiff was the chief architect of King Solomon's temple back in the days of the Old Testament. He created secret handshakes and codes so that he could tell which stone workers were apprentices and which were masters and so how much any worker should be paid for his work. Then one day, he was confronted by a group of workers. Those guys tried to get Hiram to divulge those secrets, and then when he wouldn't, they killed him. In the secret ceremony to initiate a master mason, the group would act out this story, the confrontation, the murder, the aftermath, all of it. And according to Camp, it was likely a very emotional experience. I've seen a Masonic ritual text that has a little um, sort of stage direction, which is that when uh, it's discovered that Hiram has been murdered, that other brother Masons uh, pull out their handkerchiefs and they sob into them. Again, you might be wondering, why? Why go through all this? With other organizations, you can sign a contract to join, or maybe just enter with a handshake and a smile. Why all this theatricality and emotion? Camp has a theory about that. Well, I think that what went on in those lodge spaces, what and what continues to go on, has a lot to do with the feelings that Masons develop for each other. Feelings not something most people think of in relation to the Masons. But maybe, just maybe, 
One of the reasons that Freemasonry has been so long-lasting and influential has something to do with feelings, the attachment and sense of brotherhood that members feel. And maybe those emotions can be traced back to theater, to the rituals that cause such strong emotions. The idea fascinates camp, and it's not something that many historians have looked at before. Historians of 18th century Freemasonry largely agree that the meaning or the importance of Freemasonry was that it cultivated um, certain kinds of sociability, certain kinds of ways of relating to each other in a friendly or egalitarian way among different men of different social classes. But the concept of sociability and the notion that that's what's significant about Freemasonry has become so ubiquitous that I think historians have stopped asking themselves what really went on in those rooms and why were the... Um, why were the behaviors and the and the rituals and the performances so structured, so detailed? And I think one of the answers to those questions has to do with theater and has to do with the way that theatrical performance, especially in 18th century France, was self-consciously oriented towards the cultivation of sentiment. Self-consciously oriented towards the cultivation of sentiment. Basically, this means that in the 18th century, People were really into writing plays and also going to see plays that would make you feel, well, feelings, strong feelings. In the same decades when Freemasonry went from being a very small and secretive phenomenon in France to being kind of a major um, social trend, something like, by the way, 50,000 French men became Freemasons between, you know, 1715 and, and the Revolution. Um, but in those decades when the participation is growing, in French drama, what you have is fascination with um, sentiment and pathetic feelings, um, tearful feelings. Just to be clear, the word pathetic in this context doesn't mean what it usually does today. The, the pathetic is, you know, that's the cognate for um, the French word pathétique. Um, but this was a uh, aesthetic concept that was very popular in early 18th century um, and, and, and actually all of 18th century French drama. The French dramatists and critics who wrote about it always identified it with tears. A pathetic feeling that you get from a play or you know, a scenario that's painted um, is one that moves you to want to cry. So we're talking about the original tearjerkers. At the time, this was a new thing. The idea that you should go to the theater partly for a pleasurable feeling of wanting to cry, was largely an 18th century creation. It's what we think of as sentimentalism. So during the same period that Freemasons were acting out dramatic, sentimental stories in their secret rituals, on stage, actors were performing dramatic, sentimental stories for crowds of theatergoers. And the similarities don't stop there. Very frequently in the dramatic scenarios that were thought of as pathetic, you had um, certain types of uh, familial relationships. Especially familial relationships between men. Fathers, sons, brothers, and importantly, friends who were so attached that they felt like brothers. One example Camp has studied is called The London Merchant, an English play that was translated into French by a mason. 
the dramatic engine of that story is a relationship between two different apprentices, um, one of whom is uh, uh, seduced by an immoral woman and convinced to um, steal and ends up you know, committing a murder when he's under the spell of this woman. He ends up going to the gallows. And the, the real dramatic payoff in this story is a, a sort of good, tearful goodbye scene between um, this apprentice and his fellow apprentice because they were such good friends and now one of them is going to be hanged. You likely won't see the London merchant on a stage anytime soon. For one, Camp thinks that that final goodbye scene is way too sappy for modern audiences to enjoy. But in 18th century France, the audiences loved these themes of brotherhood and passionate friendship. Men who aren't actually brothers or aren't actually related by fatherhood, um, but who learn to relate to each other in those ways. Sound familiar? Let's go back to the secret Masonic Lodge. What I think the the legend of Hiram partly does in that context is it creates a kind of um, closet drama or a kind of private theatrical scenario in which the participants can indulge in feelings of mourning and loss and sadness and fraternal and uh, paternal and filial attachment with each other. So what's really going on here? Why was there so much overlap between plays on stage and rituals in private? And why the obsession with brotherhood and strong emotion? Camp is exploring these types of questions in his book. So far, he sees patterns of influence that go in both directions. When those rituals are staged in the 18th century, it's easy to see that the men might have been um, informed by what they were seeing at the theater or thought about performing the roles in decidedly theatrical ways. Um, On the other side of that uh, relationship, though, when you look at mid and late 18th century French drama, you can see um, themes that seem to be Masonic and possibly were informed by the kinds of relationships that men in uh, Masonic lodges were developing with each other. To understand the history and significance of these performances, in the months ahead, Camp will be diving deeper into this secret and surprisingly theatrical world. Thanks to support from WashU and the Humanities Center, I was able to go and get um, copies of hundreds of in, of different ritual texts encompassing not just the first three degrees of, of Masonic um, status, but dozens of other rituals that pertain to um, things like the Scottish Rite, which goes up to 33 degrees, or um, these other sort of uh, rites that had sometimes 12, 14 different degrees. You can find these in the French National Library, and they're fascinating, and there's often a lot of similarity between different versions of the same degree, but figuring out um, how to make sense of you know, hundreds or thousands of different descriptions and dialogues from these rituals and closely reading what the the content of that communication and the content of those performances are, I think that's going to be the heart of this project. A huge thank you to Panel Camp for joining Hold That Thought. 
panel is also a fellow podcaster. He co-hosts On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. So please go give it a listen. As for this podcast, if you haven't already subscribed, please do. You can find links on our website, holdthatthought.wustl.edu. There you can also find our full archive of ideas to explore from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thank you for listening. <laughs>